0: From the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School, this is Wharton Moneyball on Business Radio.
1: Welcome. Welcome to Wharton Moneyball. Welcome to a full hour of sports analytics here on SiriusXM. This is Cade Massey in here with the full Wharton Moneyball crew. Shane Jensen is here. Audie Weiner is here. Eric Bradlow is here. We're coming to you via Zoom on Tuesday afternoon, our usual spot, Tuesday afternoon, our usual venue our friends at zoom and we are in a busy time of year, far busier than we have time to cover. Sadly, we're having to ration Soviet Russia rationing going on on subjects. We can cover second half, second half of the show, Stephanie Kovalchuk. We're going to talk tennis with Stephanie Kovalchuk because she's a fantastic modeler in that space. We always learn something from her between now and then open lines, a few topics. There might be a few sports of interest right now. We will start with the NFL And maybe we start with the college football score that came across my dashboard—70 points by the Miami Dolphins. Yeah, my goodness gracious! Any questions about Mac McDaniels' play-calling ability? What do you What do y'all think?
2: Yeah, I mean, it's, it's. I mean, again, it's especially impressive given. I mean, Denver was not a good team last year. But it was a team that was very much carried by its defense. It seemed to be actually a, an elite defense paired with a mediocre at best offense this year. That suppose you know that 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 same defense just had ten touchdowns scored on it. First time in NFL history, five passing and five rushing touchdowns.
1: Incredible!
0: Incredible. I want to comment about defense. The little I know about NFL forecasting is that. Past defense doesn't predict future defense very well. So past performance, mm, in the past, if you yeah.
2: if you, you, mean, oh, you if mean you, say, wait, we, you we, rank teams no, by no, last, last year's year.
0: defense, and the, you know last this, year. it would be
2: predictive of this year's defense.
1: But less predictive than offense is what audience. Oh is. yeah, well, I mean, I that, mean that, nothing that,
2: predicts this result. I'm just saying that it's not like they put this. Uh, get, you know, they didn't put this score up on the Chicago Bears, for example, yeah. where I mean, we for, know
3: their defense is bad. Right. The part part that I thought was interesting was I heard a stat about, like, in some sense, the amount of separation that his receivers have. Because you always wonder, like, how is Tyreek Hill open on every play? You know, Waddle didn't even play their number two receiver and and still Tyreek Hill's open. And so what I heard was that Mike Mike McDaniel's offense is number one in creating separation. Now, there's lots of reasons for that. It could be that he's got five guys that should be in the Olympic track stars. That's one possible. They're just faster than every other team. Um the explanation given was also that um it's the scheme. And so yeah. he's developed a scheme where he's got players in open space basically yeah. on every play. And so this is where advanced analytics can really help us decompose is it speed, is it the scheme, is it ha- you know, Yeah, and it's probably not surprising, Adi as well, why Chua is leading the league in completion percentage because his guys have so much separation. And And he's an
2: accurate passer. I mean, so he's accurate too. Look at the stats on that. It's not like he would not be succeeding at his current accuracy levels. You know, the the extra separations receivers are getting, it's probably leading to ten touchdowns a game or whatever. But you know, he's still. It's not just because of separation that it's interesting, Shane. I interpreted. I, I agree
3: with you, but I interpreted the stat the opposite direction, which is how right. worse a quarterback could there be, and that person still complete <laughs> a large fraction of their passes because the guys are so wide open. I no, I'm we not. We saw it last
2: year. We saw it last year when two they were two they were like scoring you know like 400, 500 yards a game went and then two was injured and then we saw what happened.
1: Well, one of the things that happens with that scheme and that kind of quarterback is that it's not just he hits the guy, but it hits him in strike because the guys are moving all the time. And so the yards after catch are highly a function of how accurate the pass is. But I, but I, Eric, real quickly on the college side, one of the great things about having, Steve Sarkeesian as the coach of the team that I pull for is that he's known as a great schemer and a great Absolutely. play caller, and guys are just running free all the time across the field, you know? Yep. So if, if you're, it's a huge advantage, it's a huge advantage. I think kind of an underweighted advantage. Shame.
2: I just have one found out on this. I actually looked it up, there's actually a quarterback in the NFL with more passing yards than two. I was shocked by this given
3: the games that he's had so far. Can you guys, I guess who it is. It's the Vikings. Kirk cousins is my yeah. guess. The 0-3, Kurt Cousins. Well, look, I know why. I mean, Shane, we've talked about this many times. I know for a fact he shredded the Bucs in week one for over 400 yards. They had four turnovers. Um, I think they've had maybe nine or ten turnovers. I'm pretty sure they lead the league in turnover margin in the worst in the worst way. They're last. And so they've turned the ball over time and time again. But I yeah. know, it's, I, I guess Kurt Cousins, so I knew that was the answer. But it wouldn't surprise me. Does he have 1,000 yards already?
2: It might, I, I'd I, I might. Yeah, it might be over a thousand. Actually. Yeah. But anyway, it's. uh, Yeah, I mean, the Vikings and Chargers are kind of both teams that, you know, the game's going to be close and they will find a way. They were very teams. lucky and found a way to win games that were close, though. We know
3: what happened. Well, but it does go. It does go, by the way, to a point you just made about that game. Where the, and Adi love, would love this too, because my Zach Bradlow, Zach Drapkin also both tweeted about this. The Chargers, let's be clear. The Chargers went for it. Fourth and one. Yep. From their own 24 yard line, their own 24 Adi with a minute 50 left. Now let's be clear why that's the right analytics play. If they make the first down, the game is over. So it reduces uncertainty to zero. They literally could have knelt on the ball. And so it turns out that was a 89% versus 82% decision, 7% on that one play. A lot of people, the announcers just didn't get it. They were like, I can't believe they're going for it. But this ends the game. And so that was a great analytics moment in the NFL. Another one was also the Packers, down 14, scored a touchdown to go down eight in the fourth quarter, went for two to go down six. That's another thing that comes straightforwardly out of analytics. As a matter of fact, my my son Zach also texted me last night a mistake that the um the Bengals just beat the um whoever Rams. the Bengals who? The Rams. The Rams. When the Rams scored a touchdown with three minutes left to go down four, they also should have gone for two to go down three, to go down two instead of three. Because again, let's remember: if you're the road team and you're the worst team, if you're if the best case for you is overtime, then you've already cut your probability of winning to no more than fifty percent. Why not put yourself in a position where you win the game outright with a field goal? And so both of those, I thought, highlighted analytics. Going for it on fourth and one, going for two down four, down eight, and going for two, which they didn't do, down four.
1: Eric, I, it's, I'm struck by a couple of your examples being your lauding. Making the move that gives you a chance of ending the game in a positive way, and uh, that all makes sense to me. But I'm I'm struck by the flip of it, which is something that seems to be the case that coaches are reluctant to make the move that introduces the possibility of ending the game in a negative way. So, for example, it was the Raiders, was it? Were it was it not? Who kicked the yeah. field goal? They were down. Yeah, they
2: kicked a the field goal down
1: eight. It's just unbelievable. Two and a half. I Daniels was like, "Well,
2: I, it was a two possession game anyway."
1: Well, but here's the thing. This is, this is the same logic you see it over and over again. They feel they, they don't want the probability of winning to go to zero. They want to extend the possibility of winning as long as possible, even if it reduces the expected likelihood of winning. So yeah. had they gone for the first down or the touchdown in that situation and not gotten it game over. No, that's what they're trying to avoid. That's actually not true in that case. No, 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 no.
3: They still had the same number of timeouts and they still could have stopped them. And then they stopped them at the five yard line, as opposed to kicking the field goal and stopping them at the 40. So so
1: it's even worse. It's even worse. It's even
0: worse. The game was not over. No. So it's interesting. So, you know, uh, I have this model for for fourth down decision making. It's our new paper. We started talked about it a little this week. Uh, uh, Ryan talked about it at Nessus. It went over real big. We ran real quickly. Hold
1: on, real quickly. Nessus is the Northeastern new England, uh, new sports England
0: sports uh, uh, conference.
1: So a, a relatively actually big sports analyst conference. And let me just say the, 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 the hubbub around this paper has been great. It was on Twitter. I've had comments from people in my email box. People love the paper. It's you and your PhD student. People yes. love this paper.
0: So a couple of things they, they loved about it. I can't, we should maybe devote a session to talk about it. But one of the things that's relevant here is we contribute to the fourth down discussion, a measure of uncertainty. Um, and the uncertainty actually comes from a bunch of things. There's obviously parameter estimates and model estimates. But the thing that we addressed Is comes from the inherent uncertainty because you just don't have enough observations of football. You think you might have 50,000 or 500,000 plays to deal with, but you really don't, particularly when it comes to win probability models because the data is highly autocorrelated and there's selection bias. So we have a way to deal with that to put what we call level of confidence. And the play that we talked about here it just It's just one of the most biggest no-brainers around. The go for it, no matter how you slice it, it's just nearly, it's just a near certainty. So
1: you're amazing, Adi. You're saying the main, I, I take one of your main lessons of this project. You're, you're not, you shouldn't be as sure about your model as you think you are. And yet you're saying there are situations where you can't be sure about your model and this happens. Yeah,
0: there, there, there's actually a couple. So, but going back to the fourth and one that you're raving about, um, the model is actually very uncertain about that. If I, if I'm, if I have the right play that we're talking about. Fourth that and one play, from your own 24, that one that you're talking about? Uh, no, uh, I think this is one when you, um, this was one of the games where there was, they decided to kick the field goal rather than go for it. Go for it.
3: Oh, this uh, is the Raiders game where they kicked the field goal down eight with two thirty left. Wow, four and four. No, way.
0: no, no way. that's not it. That was, um, uh, I have to look it up. Can I ask a question
2: point. about the fourth and one just in general?
0: That was that specific question. Uh, so there's there's been a couple of fourth and one decisions that that are that everyone thinks are sort of obvious, but sometimes are not uh, obvious. We don't really understand. But I, 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 there's one that I want to talk about that, that that that's really fascinating. A lot of these, er, everyone likes to point to the fourth and one decisions late in the game, or or the fourth down decisions late in the game, because that's where there's a lot of leverage, right? The decision really matters. And um, but it turns out that there's actually a lot of really good plays early in the game that aren't being. Acted on aggressively, you should be going for it much more frequently because the difference in wind power doesn't change much. So it could be forty-one versus forty and a half percent disadvantage—that less a half a percent. People think of that as kind of irrelevant, but the answer to that is actually wrong because if the confidence turns out to be a hundred percent, like you really should be going for it on these situations, it might be a small wind probability, but they happen all the time. There's lots and lots of first and second and third quarter decisions that people don't mm-hmm. tend to pay attention to because the wind probability differential isn't that much but they mm-hmm. add up and mm-hmm. and so we'd actually want you to to, to figure out where the no-brainers are early in the game and act on them much more and think about those as much as you think about those late ones that are high leverage.
1: Yep. There are a few people who are collecting these more systematically these days and reporting out teams and coaches' dispositions across all of the observations because they're taking or passing on those opportunities throughout the game. And as you say, they're either accumulating or neglecting edges along the way. Shane.
2: The frustrating thing about all these probability calculations is they don't take into account the play call. There's no certainty in something. I mean, or or a lot. There's a ton of uncertainty about fourth and one decision making, and a ton of uncertainty. There's no situation where you'd have total confidence because the the play calling in in fourth and one in these sort of very uncertain situations seems to be so terrible. Like I saw multiple fourth (laughs) one. Well, Shane, hold on. Fourth and fourth one. Like the, if you just like fall over, is basically total confidence.
1: But well, the, the fourth Eagles is shotgun. The Eagles seem to have figured out a pretty highly certain way to convert fourth and one. The,
2: Gary, that that makes it guaranteed. Or Tom Brady sneaking ink—that's guaranteed. But fourth and one from shot. I, somebody needs to explain to me the context where that makes any sense at all. And I see it all the time. And it's obviously throwing off all. I mean, probably fourth and one is more certain. If you could condition on doing something intelligent right. on fourth
0: and one. Mm-hmm. You know, can I, can I follow up with that? I remember having a conversation with Aaron Schatz about play calling and how we as statisticians interpret outcome uncertainty as, as randomness, right? We think of that as randomness. But a professional football play caller a team, they don't think of it as, as random. They think of it as making a mistake. So when the play fails, it's because they called the wrong player. They didn't execute. And when it succeeds, it's because they called the right player. They executed. And that's what you're 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 pointing out. Well, that, no,
2: I'm more saying yeah. that they, they are calling particular plays that it is impossible to execute in in a right. situation where it is should, it should be almost guaranteed to execute.
1: Adi, I'm entertained by your comment because I don't know who's right there. You know, we we just throw everything in anything we can't explain. We throw into the residual and call uncertainty. Right. So we under explain it. And they over-explain it, and so I don't know. I don't know where the right mix is there. What else on the NFL front before we change to other sports, guys? Any observations or well, anything? Well, I,
3: I think you know this is. The, it's only three weeks into the season, but you know they always. They always want to talk about know, what's called the irresistible force against the immovable object. I think everybody wants to see the Dolphins play the 49ers at this point right now. I mean, could be the Chiefs, but like, in other words, the 49ers appear to have a really strong defense and there's nothing wrong with their offense and Brock Purdy. The Dolphins are putting up 70 points, but I don't think anybody in their right mind thinks they're going to put up a 70 on the, on the San Francisco 49er yeah. defense.
2: We don't have to wait till the forty nine. Aren't, aren't the Dolphins playing the Bills this upcoming weekend?
3: No, no, they are. But one could argue the Bills aren't as strong a defensive team as the forty nine. If, if
2: the Dolphins roll through the Bills like they just rolled through, I think I think the I think the, Bills, the Bills are are. I just want to
3: see now. the Dolphins play an extremely strong defensive team. Is what I want to see, right. and I, okay. and that that would be interesting to see. That's all.
1: Well, what do you make
0: – what do you experts make of the Cardinals uh, beating – This is what I was going to say. I,
1: I'm just so I mean, delighted. It happens every season where we, we think we know two teams from opposite ends of the district. Yeah. We think we're certain about two teams, and they play, and we get the opposite outcome. Didn't
3: they both. listen to my prediction last week that 14 points, you can basically go directly to zero? Which and I you told me I was nuts and you were right because the cow I don't think the cowboys were favored by 14 but it might have been nine and a half ten and a half etc um this is no, no the way to beat the cowboys has been over the last few years why the eagles have had success is you just keep running the football as long as you don't pass the ball then the strength of the cowboys defense which is the pass rush well don't pass the ball just keep rushing the ball. So their quarterback rushed the ball. Their running backs rushed the ball. Everybody just kept rushing the ball. And you average five or six yards a carry, and Dak Prescott makes a couple of mistakes, and there, there all of a sudden, 28 to 17, or whatever the final score was.
1: I love it. It seems like something like that happens every every season. Okay, as we transition, one quick moment on college football, because we had this over-under contest last week. We had this great slate of games. I laid out nine games and ask how many of these will the favorite win just straight out And the spreads range from, you know, plus or minus 14 to plus or minus two or three great slate Saturday afternoon. We took, I set the over under two and a half. Shane and Eric took the under Audie got go to the, taking the over with me and zero, favorite slots zero it's an extraordinary run boring chalky chalky chalk chalk of a day i went out and looked at the probabilities we were kind of kind of making them up out of the thin air on the show i ran them and the expected number of upsets turned out to be two and a quarter i think so i set the line slightly too high but it was going to be between two and three so two and a quarter so we weren't crazy the 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 probability that you would see no upsets in that nine game slate was five percent which is even higher than i thought it was five percent chance
3: I think we have to stop predictions because I think you guys are, would vouch for this. I think over our nine-plus years of show, not at, am I in last place every season, but by an extraordinarily large margin. So I'm leading right now, co-tied with Shane for this season, so we can stop.
4: Gotta wrap it up. All right. <laughs> I mean, I, if, I like that, if, if that
2: really was predictably – if that was true, Eric, then there, there's there obviously a way of turning your predictions
0: into optimal predictions.
1: That's right. You go the That's opposite. Right. I got it. I got George it. George can, can I
0: jump in here? Uh, I don't see how you can get a five percent uh, If it's two and a quarter is the mean, I don't see how five percent can show up as a zero. Um I'll that just seems a little I'll slow.
1: I'll give you a little I'll little. give you the little spreadsheet. It was pretty straightforward, I believe. But I, I would be I was surprised that it was too that high as well. So maybe I did something wrong. Guys, uh, let's talk about baseball. And I know y'all are gonna take us into player level, Cy Young kind of stuff. But can we just marvel for a, not marvel is a little strong word. We have some fun races. We have some fun races and our Oreos are maintaining. It's just been tight and they picked up a game on Sunday. They, they and the Rays were off yesterday, but it's a two and a half game lead with a week left. So the East, I know, and y'all don't want to talk about the East, but it's a fun division. It's worth noting I that.
2: Around, I, knew, around. I mean, we let's just join ourse- ourselves in misery that the 1966 was the last time the Red Sox and Yankees finished worst and second worst in their division. Wow. wow. Going wow. back then, Geez, it
4: wasn't
3: Now, Kate, one of the things, of course, we're upset about as baseball fans here in Philly is that, and also as fans of the Orioles, if you think about if chalk happens in the – first round of the MLB playoffs. The yeah. second round will be the Orioles and the Rays. Yeah, And the yeah. other first round will be the Phillies and the Braves. Yeah, so brutal. I'm not too happy about either of those two, yeah, actually. Not, not
1: great. How On that point, how much of an advantage is it to get the bye, get your guys rested, get your pitching rotation set up just right, get the home field? It is an advantage, right? I mean, we've known for a long time that whoever won that, or whoever won the AL East was going to see that same team in the second round, as long as they make it through that best of three, which is not a given best of three. I mean, God, it's almost flipping coins. But what advantage do you think it is to be able to get a little rest, set up your pitching rotation and get home? Oh, I, I
3: think it's huge because just think. Uh, of, let's also remember, Adi, the second round is best of five. So let's right. remember, let's say the Phillies play in the first round, which it's likely they're going to be the home team. They have to pitch Wheeler. Nola, etc. Now, of a sudden, there's one day off and now it's games one and two of the next series. None of those pitchers can pitch games one and two. If anything, maybe they can pitch game three. So that means potentially you have your four and five starters going against the one and two starters of the other team that's had six days off. Already, you could argue an expectation. You're probably down one and a half to a half. It's not two to zero, but it's probably one and a half to a half. That's a tough hole in a five game series.
1: And cat, it, I mean, that makes it a lot. Well, Shane, that argument you... would
3: be the hitters get a cold. I mean, so, I mean, I think we
2: have to sort of, when you think about it, I mean, I think, you know, extra rest does, I think help pitchers and they're kind of used to sort of like maintaining whatever their version of momentum or performance and mechanics is through like many days off. That's kind of their style. Anyway, for hitters where you're used to kind of hitting every day, I I don't know if that extra rest is actually helpful.
0: Okay. Adi? Uh, can we change topics and talk about Blake Snell? I don't know whether that's on, on the cards yet because I'd love to. No, I just yeah, want
3: to know if yeah. you think how big an effect size is what uh, Kate's talking about besides a buy by change rule just doubles your probability already, even conditional on, let's say the the team going through, how much loss of probability do you think there is yeah. due to As, the, loss of pitching rotation, possibly, you know, lack of rest, although maybe it's positive in some ways. I mean, what do you think? Adi? Assuming, how assuming
1: the teams are, assuming that the teams are, are relatively, I mean, Basically evenly matched, and there's a little bit of a home field advantage, but just the, just the setup, just the time away.
0: Well, I mean, I think there's a little bit of an advantage because you really want to pitch your best pitchers most frequently. That's really the most the biggest advantage you get, and if you can line them up, they're going to pitch the most in, in the in the whole series if they get to start. If Wheeler has to pitch in the two three in the three game one, it, he's kind of running behind, and that's a that's a pretty big loss. On the other hand, I always wondered about this. Um, don't you not want to start? Your two best starters against each other. You'd like almost want to like have your number two or three guy go against their number one, and have your number one go against their number two. I wonder that you accumulate a little bit of advantage. I just think you guys period.
2: are you guys are all so cute with your little strategies for the playoffs. It's a coin <laughs> flip, right? I mean, come on! Don't yeah. don't now talk yourself coin flip. into so like really, some kind I... of strategic thing again.
3: Well, I will say one thing, Shane. I think you would agree with this. If you were the measurably worst team, like you can make an argument. Anybody playing the Braves. You could construct, in a five-game series, you could construct an argument, as Adi said, put your best pitchers games three, four, and five and just hope you make it. Mm-hmm. It's not a horrible strategy if you didn't think, of course, they would do the same, but that's fine.
1: All right. Well, that's that reminds me of Ryder Cup, which we'll get to uh, fleetingly on the way out, but Adi's got a Cy Young thing going on here. Adi- yeah, so
0: Snell now going to win the Cy Young in the National League um i believe um and there's a couple here's two three facts about him i think are really interesting one of them is um he has a 1.2 era over 23 games this season which is just unbelievably low um wait his but, era for the season is 1.2 no it's not no oh. over a 23 game stretch over the season i think the last 23 games which is ridiculous no not for the whole season the whole he's in the twos yeah. but what's fascinating about him is he has Almost five walks per nine, which is outrageously high for a pitcher of this quality, which to me is very fascinating, because when you go to like Fangraphs, which has a war calculation, which is based on FIP, they just hammer him for having all these walks. But it's a great. Blake Snell's a great, great example of why that's just dumb for pitchers because pitchers can give up walks strategically, particularly if they're wonderful, very high strikeout pitchers. <laughs> you pitch around the guys it's, you that, want. You know, a walk when there's two outs is is, is often irrelevant, and it's it's just to to, well, to count a pitcher's stats, uh, walks as equal is just sort of ridiculous. Um, so, uh, what do you want to say? <laughs> if you're Blake Snell's quality. Yeah, yes. maybe walks don't matter. Yes. But I mean,
2: you're, you're pointing this out because it's so historically weird. I mean, he he is a, a weird pitcher because he's able to somehow pitch around walks. But in a way that most, you know, I still do think walks in general, like walk, oh, of course, walk average. is great advice for pitchers in general. Absolutely. Very few of them have Blake Snell's kind of, I think, not replicatable talent of getting out of it.
0: Well, sure, but the very best pitchers are able to do that, and that's something to recognize. Not mm-hmm. the, your typical student, but the absolute best ones. So if you look, for example, at his war, according to fa- Fangraphs, it's around four. Um, our war calculation, a grid war, has him well over six, and and uh, Garrett Cole is, is second place, um, and, but, and almost a game behind in terms of the season war level. But what's fascinating is because he never gets far in the game, he's – He's nothing like the, the pitchers from, from like Pedro Martinez, you know, who would average about nearly 0. .35 war per game, which is just crazy high compared to what, what Blake Snell is doing. It's like not even on, just a little bit more than half that because he's not he's pulling him in the fifth or sixth inning game after game. The Starters are just not being used in today's game. All this is telling
2: me that the Cy Young
0: race in the NL was underwhelming this year. <laughs> yeah, well, but it's remarkable figures for an underwhelming race. I mean, to be generally that good on a per game basis, per inning basis, actually
2: per inning is, exactly. Yeah, it's per like, inning.
0: He's,
1: he's the
2: best kind of like weird closer as starter out there, or whatever. <laughs> you got it.
1: So it's I mean, y'all give me a team since yours are sitting out the postseason. What team are you most interested in watching? I'm guessing Phillies. Is there a team? Philadelphia, sure. the team beyond Philadelphia, maybe in the AL that you're intrigued by or pulling for as we, as we move into the last week of the season.
2: Yeah. The Orioles and the Mariners, if they make it though, it doesn't look like they will. Um, but I, I, I'm, I, I'm, I'm all team Orioles at this point. They're exciting. They're young. They're not the Houston Astros. Um, you know, to see uh, from a Red Sox fan, the season is not a six has not been a success, but it's also not been a failure.
3: <laughs> in my case, it's the Braves. I just want, well, you know, they've been so dominant in the uh, MLB season this year, just want to see how they do. That's all. I just want to see if they perform as well as they have. And, you know, I'm going to keep going by Shane's point flip model. I don't put them as much of a favorite against the Braves or any of the other top teams in the uh, – the uh, so there were Dodgers uh, in the top teams, but they've right. had a dominant regular season.
2: Yeah, agreed, agreed. It would be, you know, kind of out of historical interest, it would be cool to see them uh, the, uh, close it out.
1: Okay, last word, Ryder Cup, one of the best events in sports, only every other year, US going back to Europe, they have not won in Europe in 30 years, they've got a much more seasoned team than do the Europeans, European top heavy, bottom heavy, by some accounts, they have the top three golfers out of the 24 and the bottom three golfers out of the 24. What are you expecting to see? And just the last few bits here, what are you expecting to see? How excited are you about this Ryder Cup?
3: Well, U.S. hasn't won on foreign soil in 30 years, so that's also interesting and exciting. And uh, it's always interesting to see who can take down potentially the top golfers in the world. And so it's, it's a very interesting Ryder Cup. I agree. And there's the polarization index is high.
1: But anybody can, right? This is the thing about match play in golf. I mean, anybody can take down the top player in golf. This is I mean, the, the, the guys you haven't heard of from Denmark, those guys are gonna take down somebody in golf. It's gonna happen.
3: I think I think all of you know the stat in the last two seconds. Tiger Woods, I think, is eight, 12 and four in the Ryder Cup, uh singles matches. So let's or, or it's single in that yeah. plus the president's cup. So the, the highly, greatest golfer of our today. generation has basically a slightly sub five hundred record.
1: I think Shane is seeing another coin flip model. He's going to be he's going to be uh It's expand- my momentum. He's expanding his uh, reach. All right guys, that's been the first half of Wharton Moneyball. We still have a second half to go. Come back and join us after the break.
0: You're listening to Wharton Moneyball on Business Radio.
1: Welcome back. Welcome back to Wharton Moneyball. Welcome to the second half. Of Wharton Moneyball. This is Cade Massey hosting with the whole crew in here for the whole day. Been a been an upside of being on Zoom these last few years. We get more of us in here more of the time. Eric Bradlow is here. Audie Weiner is here. Shane Jensen is here, and happily for all of us, Stephanie Kovelchek is here. Stephanie is a multiple time guest on our show over the years. She's a data scientist at Zealous Analytics. You guys probably know that we pick up folks from Zealous here and there from all kinds of sports and all kinds of specialties. Stephanie's real specialty in terms of a sport is tennis. She's a crazy good modeler, sophisticated statistician, and she's chosen to practice her art in tennis. And so it's always fun to hear what she's up to. Stephanie, welcome back to Wharton Moneyball.
4: Oh, thanks for that introduction. Um, And yeah, happy to be here.
1: Stephanie is calling in from Munich, where she's based these days she has a substack is one of her main pieces of main ways to see her work these days is a substack with the delightful t- title for a ten- tennis analyst of you cannot be serious stats you cannot be serious stats is stephanie's substack you can follow her work there stephanie i know you've been doing a lot this year showing up on that on that on that substack can you give us a little bit of uh, a little sense of your some of your favorite pieces there or any particular thing you're excited about in your tennis analytics work?
4: Yeah. Well um the SubSec, I should just say, I mean, it's um something I started at at the beginning of the year just, you know, as a interesting way to deliver analytics driven stories. So um the SubSec titles obviously tug in cheek, but it's it is serious content. I mean we always try to bring out some interesting things in a quantitative way. And um, we post a story weekly and um, one of the main things that we highlight um, are stories that are derived from a kind of unique set of player rating systems that, that um, we maintain as part of the, the sub stack and, and that I have developed over a number of years that I've been working in tennis. Um, so there's um, one that's just, you know, your overall rating, which there are various kind of flavors of that you can see these days. Um, but I think the ones that are particularly um, exciting are our skill-based ratings. So mm-hmm. they're um, similar to the overall ratings or kind of ELO-style ratings that, that you might have seen in, across sports. Um, but um, what's unique about them is that they focus specifically on serve and, and return performance. Mm-hmm. Um, so we make use of outcomes on serve and return and can even break it down by first and, and second serve. Um, and that can just provide a bit of a, you know, unique perspective on um, where a player's outcomes are primarily driven mm-hmm. um, and also um, can be a bit more revealing in cases than just an, an overall rating. And um, one example of that recently was actually with Coco Gauff. So I had um, we had a feature um, that was sizing up the U.S. Open women's uh, seeds. So looking at each quarter in relation to these skill ratings and sort of seeing how players were tracking going into the event
1: mm-hmm. and golf
4: was particularly interesting because she had like quite a bit of momentum on the skill ratings and, and was headed into the event with the highest skill rating among the women's seeds. Mm-hmm. Um, so that was, I mean, it turns out now that potentially it was a bit of an indicator of what was possible mm-hmm. Um her case was interesting though because she ended up being in one of the more difficult quarters. Um, she had Shion Tech A number of like former Grand Slam winners ended up in that particular quarter, um, but she was lucky enough that it was Ostapenko that took out Shvantek rather than rather than herself. So that sort of opened things up for her. But um, but that just is kind of one one example where the skill ratings can be a bit. Um, mm-hmm insightful beyond just, you know, overall winning.
1: Mm-hmm.
3: Mm-hmm. So, Stephanie, I just want to follow up on your exact point here, because I love, of course, the, word, the use of the word momentum, but I just want to understand exactly <laughs> how you're, this is an inside joke here on Morton Moneyball. I just want to make sure I understand your comment might be, it's good to know how good a player's serve is. It's good to know how good a player's return is, but there could be non-stationarity and local information like Coco Goff won the tournament beforehand, and therefore that's going to carry more weight than just her overall ability in some way. Is that what you're saying to our listeners?
4: Yeah, I think um, it's essentially a directional thing when you're thinking about about a rating, right? You could have two players that are nearly equal in their um, rating at any given time. But momentum would essentially be like the direction of the trajectory that has gotten them to that particular point. And um, the U.S. Open Women's Draw was an interesting one from that point of view, because like Shriantek, for example, um, was similar in rating, still slightly edging out um, the other seeds. um, While as, you know, golf had had caught up, um, but Shriantek has been quite stagnant. In her ratings, whereas you know golf has been um, over the past six months, in particular, um, consistently adding to her.
1: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
0: So, uh, Stephanie, I wanted to um, elaborate on, I guess, on this little issue about about momentum and what it means. Um, we model player performance in other sports, and typically, when we think about momentum, we're thinking about within a local time frame improvement or, or decrement. But when we model player performance, we will put an arc or a trajectory over years. It's often an age curve or just an improvement curve, which we absolutely want to model. In tennis, are you thinking more in the short term or kind of the long term? Are they getting better over time? And you want to kind of predict what's happening by, by putting the derivative, if you will, uh, into the into the ranking.
4: You could model in the sense that ratings could be the outcomes for something like a time series model. And then you could quantify um these these sort of patterns. Um, but it's something that, you know, you can usually see visually um, when you're looking over something like a season period. Um, and and so it, it's generally that. Um, so not not putting an exact number to say how much does momentum add. I mean, by and large, results are explainable by um the just overall rating that a player has at any given time. Um, And then there's always like a luck component. So that was one of the things with the U.S. Open that I think was helpful in Goff's case, that she didn't have to actually face a player like Tech, for example. And that's just the luck of the draw. Mm
0: -hmm. Mm -hmm. Can can I follow up, uh, Stephanie, with a quick question? I want to learn something about tennis players, at least in contrast to other sports. Um, do, do you see tennis players sort of noticeably getting better or worse in a season in a way that you can quantify? Because we wouldn't do that in baseball. Typically, you wouldn't say mid season all of a sudden, this now a better or worse pitcher. I mean, we see it, but we don't we would we would have to adjust for multiple comparisons and get a little suspicious. Um, I remember there was a player, Daniel Murphy, who t- seemed to turn into an, a Hall of Famer in one afternoon. And, and we always wondered what to make of that. Um and, and, and I don't know if you remember that. Um, but I think you're su- you're suggesting that in tennis that actually happens in in a in a more regularly and and should be modeled.
4: Yeah, I mean, I guess the thing that's probably unique with tennis when you're thinking about just overall outcomes of matches is you know the knockout tournament because what that means, like for example, for a rating system, um, that if you observe multiple outcomes for a player at a given event, it's because they keep winning, right? Like, whereas in a sense, like the most informative things are when they actually have a loss. Um, so it's interesting in a way that, you know, often when you have a player uh, like a Djokovic, you know, or an Alcaraz, um, that their wins aren't very informative to what changes are happening in their skill level. Um, so yeah, so there, there is a bit of, um, I guess a drawback in a sense, right? I think tennis would actually be more informative to skill if it had more of, you know, like a series, um, style across, (laughs) across its
1: play. Have you suggested that stuff? That you we can do better analytics if they would just structure the tournaments differently. Eric has something Yeah, there. I
3: just wanted to make a connection to what Stephanie just said. This is the most, a very known result in the world of educational testing, where you don't learn anything by really able people getting items right. There's almost no information. It's when they get items wrong. And so this is back to Stephanie's point that incorrect answers and their patterns, or if you'd like, losing matches are actually tend to be much more informative for people on the right tail of the distribution, which Mm -hmm. is why we do exactly this in educational testing is adaptive testing. We have to give them increasingly harder and harder items. Otherwise, we'll never learn anything. And so Mm -hmm. it's very similar in tennis ratings and
1: updates. the other way as well right if they're missing everything then you're also not learning anything (laughs) because you gotta you gotta find out where they cross from one to the other Stephanie please I'm sorry
4: (laughs) well I was just going to say there's one interesting place where um it would be relatively easy to introduce a bit more um I guess mixing with, with an event and that's um And that's by, like, sort of extending the lucky loser beyond the first round. So, like, right now, it's a case that if you um, have a player that withdraws early enough before an event begins, then they will bump up qualifiers that have actually lost. Um, And that's the the lucky loser scenario. But they only do that in tennis in the first round. So, from that point on, if you have, like, a withdrawal, which can happen, and sometimes it can be frustrating because it can happen at like a quarterfinal or a semifinal and then you just don't even get a match. And those are instances where you could imagine like bringing up an, a player that has lost in the previous round and just uh, allowing them to continue. And that would also have the benefit of actually giving us some more information about mm-hmm. about skill level. I mean, in a very mm-hmm. kind of small sort of random way, but right. but still That's it's good. an interesting one.
1: Absolutely. Well, speaking of additional information, what do we learn about the game of tennis when you start decomposing it into these skill ratings that you have? So for example, in golf, when Mark Brody introduced strokes gained, we all of a sudden understood that quite surprisingly approach shots were one of the real places where players differentiated themselves and some of the long held truisms like drive for show, put for dough, aren't in fact true like putting 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 performance isn't predictive at all almost do you have that level are we seeing the, are we getting those kinds of insights from this decomposition that you're bringing to this tennis ratings
4: well i mean it's still a focus focused on just overall match performance but i do think it can tell you about different um styles of how players are able to construct wins so Like an Alcaraz, for example, is um, a player that has a very uh, return dominant game. Like his real skill and weapon is his return game, you know, at a player when you break down um, into these individual skill ratings. What's the predominant skill um, for particular events? So, for example, at the U.S. Open, um, you could see that return performance performance was um, somewhat more decisive than overall serve, just collectively, which Mm -hmm. um, can be something that, you know, could be influenced, for example, by, you know, um, tennis will make ball changes to try to slow the game down, for example, and that can affect playing styles and which have a bit more of an advantage. So so some of these are things that you can um, get insights about with the skill ratings.
1: Mm-hmm. That sounds like it has uh, for, for our listeners who are into sports betting. It sounds like it has betting opportunities. You wonder to what extent those kinds of differences are fully priced. I'm sure they're somewhat priced, but it'd be interesting to know whether that was an opportunity um, to match skill, good ratings, good ratings, which you might be providing the only ones of skill-based ratings with surfaces or tournaments. Stephanie, um, I thought of you while watching the U.S. Open. I always think of you. I don't watch enough this that I don't think about you, when I do, because you've got such cool models. The first time I saw you present work was at a Carnegie Mellon con- conference, and you were, my memory, I could have this wrong, you were essentially modeling players, like down to the fundamentals, like, like parametric models of players. And I wonder how that project has gone for you, because – Djokovic was quoted as saying something going into that final. He was quoted as saying something about how much better he thought he was than when he was younger and how much, how easily he would whip the younger version of himself. And I wondered mm-hmm. if you had models of players at such a fundamental level that you could parameterize the 23 year old Djokovic and the 35 year old Djokovic and simulate a match between the two of them.
4: <laughs> that's, um, that's a fun idea. I mean, I think, um, the thing that's a real advantage with with tennis is that the physics are fairly simple. I mean, if you contrast it with something, you know, like like soccer um, or basketball, where you know each each possession you don't know like how long it might last, and you know there's so many events and the ball can be moving in erratic ways. Where where tennis, like just at the individual shot, both the the movement of the players. The movement of the ball—it's really smooth, and so that does open up some um, advantages in the way that you can approach um, modeling tracking data in in tennis. Um, So that—that's a project that that I've worked on. Essentially, it's you know um, a shot value that can then be the foundation for you know overall um, expected like point value, Mm -hmm. um, and then you know, there's a variety of metrics that can be derived from that, particularly when you have the ability to um, model um, the both ball and player movement, then those become things that you can condition on. Um, mm-hmm. And that's right. where interesting metrics can come out. Cause you can imagine like you condition out the opponent and then right. that allows you to isolate, you know, server skill apart from the server return performance and, Um, so all of that's easier in a way, um, in tennis compared to a lot of other like ball sports. Um, so there's, yeah, a lot of possibilities. Um, and you know, some of that work was part of what I developed at the game inside group when I was with tennis Australia. Um, and then at Zellis, I mean, um, the modeling of, of spatial information is um, is kind of our, our bread and butter. And mm-hmm. we do this and we have internal methodologies across multiple sports. Um, mm-hmm. It's just really finding the right avenue in tennis. But um, unfortunately, the, the data landscape in tennis is the main barrier. Um, so if you wonder, like, why you don't see some of that appearing on broadcast it's it's largely because of the the data issues and not for a lack of ideas
1: when you say data issues, but they're just not making data available is that is that what you mean
4: it's really comes down to the that the owners of the data don't really have an incentive to help players get better. Uh-huh.
1: Wow. That's, that's so different than say the NFL's philosophy, which is we just assume that it's, it's good for development. So we're just going to make these data available back out to the teams and players to do it as they want to.
4: Yeah. Yeah. It's um, really the events are the primary owners. I see of, um, and you know, the events themselves, like they're interested in fans and, and sponsorship and less so in, in perform actual, you know, individual player performance.
1: Wow, geez. Okay, so there needs to be some kind of umbrella organization bringing more um, motivation. That's interesting. Um, Stephanie, let's grab one more thing from you before we go. Let's talk about a player. Alcaraz has been one of the more eye-catching players in the last couple of years. Of course, Djokovic is a story lately, but since Alcaraz is less of a known quantity, can could you give us your considered opinion on what his potential is Given his age, Adi talked earlier about modeling age curves and the degree to which you're already analyzing his game and breaking it down to these skills. What is your observation on Alcaraz? What could you tell us about Alcaraz? How optimistic are you about where he's going in his professional career?
4: Yeah, there are a few things um, that are compelling with Alcaraz. So so one of the things that's kind of fun that you can do with, with historical ratings, since we do have them you know, going back um, throughout the open era, is you can contrast a player at their stage in their career against, exactly. let's say, legends of the sport, um, yeah. You know, a- even across eras. And so one of the things um, that I've looked at with, let's say, the players that are in their early 20s at this stage, it's like, how do they compare with the big four um, when mm-hmm. they were at that point? Mm -hmm. Um, and, um, what's interesting is that Alcaraz most closely aligns with, with Nadal's trajectory. So it's like, you know, first Grand Slam as a teenager, um, you know, Alcaraz, he's 20, he has two Grand Slams now. Um, but what's interesting, I mean, sometimes, um, the comparison, which has been made a lot already (laughs) in his young career, um, the Alcaraz-Nadal comparison is that, um, what's hidden a bit in there is that there is quite a difference between them as far as the surface specialization. So Mm -hmm. Nadal, Mm -hmm. I mean, clearly, right. He's just the king of clay courts. Um, What Alcaraz, he's really an all surface player. And that was really um, shown this year by his win at Wimbledon, which I mean, you barely won. It showed that, there's a lot of information from other events about how players are expected to perform on other surfaces. So there is important, you know, shared information there. Um, Uh And also that he's able to adapt and he's able to play all of the surfaces. So I think um, that combination, you know, in a way it puts him on a trajectory that's almost more like a mix of a Nadal and Djokovic potentially because you know, he's um has more breath, let's say, I guess in his yep. Yep. in his skill set.
3: Yeah, I was just gonna say I always like to remind people that when they talk about Nadal's breath, that if even if you take away his 14 French open titles, he's still Jimmy Connors and Yvonne Lendl and has more majors than John McEnroe. So I'm not saying Nadal isn't the king <laughs> of play, but he does have eight other majors. And actually I Stephanie, I always love talking to experts about this. I don't consider, I have to always decide for myself which one I consider more interesting for me about Nadal, the fact that he won 14 French or the fact that he won eight others.
4: No, that's a fair, that's a fair point. Um, but I think it's the, you know, the within surface comparison, like if you contrast with with Djokovic or with the Federer, for example, um, it's just the case that, right, the clay just stands out. It doesn't mean that he's not capable on other surfaces. Like I said, with the Alcaraz example, I mean, usually performing outstandingly well on one surface does generally predict that you should perform well on other surfaces as well. Um, It's just that that kind of, um, you know, super excellence um, on clay is not the case with Alcaraz. That's just the main point, because sometimes Mm -hmm. I think the comparisons between the two almost implies that
1: all right, Stephanie, we're going to we're gonna have to step away. We thank you for the time, especially ringing from Europe, where it's quite a bit later. Always a delight to talk to you. Wish you the best with the work you're doing, both on your own at the You Cannot Be Serious Stats blog. You Cannot Be Serious Stats blog on Substack, and also your work at Zealous, which we know touches many sports beyond just tennis. But it's always a pleasure to talk to you. Stephanie Cavalchuk. Yeah,
4: thanks again.
1: All right, guys, that's been another Wharton Moneyball, another full hour of sports analytics here on SiriusXM. For the whole crew, we had everybody in here for the whole hour. Audie Weiner, Shane Jensen, Eric Braddle. This has been Cade Massey. Big thanks to Matty Dats, the boss man always keeping us on track. And a big thanks to Dion Simpkins, the associate boss man, for doing the real work around here. Thank you guys for listening. Come back and join us next time. Between now and then, enjoy your sports.